Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Proverbs chapter 3 tonight. I want to read our text. It's just two verses, two very well-known verses uh, from chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where we'll take our study from tonight. As we uh, launch into this, it says in chapter 3, verse 5, the author Solomon, he writes to you and I, and he says, trust, that means put the full weight of your life upon, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not, that is, don't put the weight of your life upon your own understanding, but in all All your ways, second time the word all is used in the passage, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And so tonight I want to talk to you about trust issues. That's the name of our message tonight. Anyone here have trust issues? Maybe trust issues in a relationship uh, or maybe trust issues even in your relationship with the Lord. I think he wants to say something to us. And so the endeavor of our study, the reason why we go through the book of Proverbs is because we want to pursue wisdom. We want God's wisdom in our lives, leading our lives, directing our lives. I I shared last week A definition of God's wisdom, uh, according to the Bible, is a clear understanding of a thing that leads to right actions unto a pleasant outcome. And, and our goal in this study is that we would increase in wisdom, that our wisdom from God would grow. Now, wisdom is not like knowledge, because you can gain knowledge in a thousand different ways uh, constantly, but wisdom is different. Wisdom is more instinctual than instructional. It's something that comes from within. It's more of a sense than a discipline. I had a piano teacher when I was young, Mrs. Parsons, and she used to uh, harp on me to practice, which I never did until like an hour before my piano lesson. But she used to say that you had to do something 23 times before it would become a habit. And she used to say that all the time. She said it, obviously she said it at least 23 times because I remember that she said that, you know. But essentially what she was teaching was uh, the, the forming of habits through discipline. And, and wisdom is even a step beyond that. Wisdom is not a discipline because in order for us to possess wisdom, we have to have something imparted to us on a deeper level than what discipline can touch. In other words, wisdom doesn't come by doing something 23 times and and making it into a habit. Wisdom has to come from something even deeper than that. And, And so true wisdom is really the result of patience and time and experience and the spirit of God doing something inside of us, producing something that becomes what we are. It's not education and practice. Now, because of this, because wisdom is this way, that it's something that comes from the inside and it's deep, the writer of Proverbs spends the first nine chapters, that's almost one-third of the book, just exhorting, encouraging, and pleading with us to make it our pursuit to obtain this wisdom from God. And if you think about it, that's a remarkable amount of text 
to dedicate just to saying, listen, you want to make this a part of your life. And he's pleading with us to get wisdom, whatever it takes to get it. And essentially, what he does in these nine chapters is that he tells us all of the benefits of what God's wisdom is going to give to us. And what he says is that it's purely beneficial and that there are no side effects. That if we have God's wisdom, it's going to benefit us physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally, circumstantially, professionally, and emotionally. Every way of our life is going to be benefited by having God's wisdom, and there's going to be no side effects at all. Now, also in those nine chapters, interwoven in that exhortation to get wisdom is a warning. And the warning that Solomon gives to us is that there is a counterfeit wisdom that we need to be aware of. Now, if you read it, how many of you, I'm going to put you on the spot, actually read chapters 1 through 9 this week, like I asked you to last week? Actually, don't raise your hands. I don't want you to feel like you have to lie or be embarrassed. If you didn't, This week, you want to read chapters 1 through 9. And what you're going to find is that there are two women in these chapters that keep appearing over and over again. In fact, four times each. One of the two women is named. In the Hebrew, her name is Chakra. In the Greek, her name is Sophia. In the English, her name is Wisdom. The woman named Wisdom is likened unto, for you and I, the legitimate wife who is proposing to us contrary to normal tradition. She's saying, listen, I want to be your legitimate wife and you want to be married to me. That's going to be to your advantage and to your benefit. The other woman who is also mentioned four times in these nine chapters does not have a name, but she has a title. She's called the strange woman, all right? And she is the adulteress. And she is representative of a counterfeit wisdom. And so the warning that Solomon is giving in these pleading chapters is that there is a wisdom that will help you, but there is also a wisdom that will harm you. There is one that is nothing but a benefit, and there is another that will completely ruin your life if you give yourself to her. And the reason why Solomon likens these two women unto wives or spouses is because the nature of wisdom is that it's married to us. In other words, when we have a wisdom, it's something that is a part of what we are. It's where our decision-making and our operating system comes out of. So if we're married to the right wisdom, then our instincts are going to be inclined in the right direction. And we're going to go the right way and we're going to enjoy our lives. But if we embrace and espouse and marry the wrong wisdom then that is also going to become instinctual and we're going to be continually getting in our own way, stepping on our own feet and ruining our lives decision after decision. Sometimes I talk to people whose lives are kind of in shambles and they'll say, I don't get it. I've got 25 years of experience walking with the Lord. And from hearing what they say and some of the decisions that they make, what it sounds like to me is that really they have one year of experience that they've repeated 24 times. 
because they keep making the wrong decisions. And so the urgency behind the warning is that if you marry the wrong wisdom, then you're going to have the wrong kind of instinct. And that's going to lead to the wrong decisions and tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And so nine chapters imploring us to get wisdom. Now, last week in the introductory study, What I gave to you was, first of all, wisdom's foundation, which was found in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says that the fear of the Lord, to fear him, to know who he is, to acknowledge him in his size and his majesty and his might, to fear him is the beginning of knowledge, which are the building blocks of what becomes wisdom. And so the foundation is to fear him. But then the path after we're on the foundation is to trust him. And I shared with you Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 at the closing of our study last week. So the foundation is to fear him. The pathway is to trust him. But tonight I want to pick up there and here's why. Because if you say or hear me say to you that to trust him is the pathway to wisdom and that all you have to do is trust the Lord with your life and everything's going to work out, then I'm setting you up for frustration and failure right there. Because although it's very easy to say, trust the Lord, it's not as easy to do it in real life. If you came in here tonight, and and, and this may even have happened to you, that you lost your job today, and you're responsible for more than just you. And so the losing of a job has a major ripple effect and impact on a lot of lives. And if you came in here and you said that you lost your job, and I replied to you by saying, that's all right, just trust God. You would say, yeah, I'll show you trust God. You know, you would say that's a pastor that doesn't care. You know, he just doesn't know what to say or what to do, and he can't help me. And so he's just giving me the cliche of trusting God. We all know that there are times in life that trusting God is not as easy as it sounds. Now, there's two reasons for that that I want you to consider. Two reasons why it's hard to trust God. The first one is because man is man. You could write that down if you want. First reason why it's hard to trust God is because man is man. Now, every single one of us in this room tonight, we all face circumstances, situations, and whatnot where we need some help, where we need some insight, where we need some counsel. Now, one of the things that we have is that we have resources. We have money. We have uh, people that we can get advice and counsel from. We have information. Almost every single one of us tonight has a computer in our pocket or on our person that we can just consult, and we have access to so much informational resource. And another thing that every single one of us have, probably the thing that all of us enjoy the most, is that we have cognition. That is that we have a brain, we have a mind, and we can think. And so what having all of those things does is that it makes trust an immediate challenge for us because of the resources that we have. Now, all of us here tonight, I don't know where you're at. There may be some of you tonight that are here and you know Jesus, you're walking with him. There might be others of you that you're seeking, you're asking questions, you're curious, you're open, and you're it, you know, evaluating whether or not is, is Jesus real? Do I want to follow him? And there may be some of you here tonight that in all honesty, you just say, no, I'm not interested in that. Someone invited me to come and I'm here, but I have no interest in God. No matter where you are on that spectrum, our humanness, every single one of us has a default setting and that is self. I trust me. 
And that's the way I am. That is the, that's the human condition. That is why in 2018, the self-help book industry was a $10 billion industry. That's a lot of money people spend on so now i'm not hating on self-help books because there are some useful things i have read books that fall under that category that that i've gleaned from and gained from so i'm not saying anything about that that's bad but the problem with self-help books is that oftentimes they're inconclusive and also the pathway of help is often found in the way of productivity and performance. And so that $10 billion metric tells us that we're consuming this at a higher and higher rate because we want to grow. But what we see is that the pathway to that growth is through production and productivity, which essentially is equivalent to leaning upon our own understanding. And we like that because that's the way that we're wired. We're wired to trust ourselves. Now, the call of Solomon in this pursuit of having true wisdom is that we are to forsake trusting in ourselves and we're to lean ourselves completely upon trusting someone else. And that's challenging for us because man is man. The second reason why it's not that easy to trust God is because God is not a man. Man is not, man is man, God is not a man. And that presents a second level of trust uh, issue. Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says this just to be clear. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now, that's an immeasurable distance, meaning that you're not going to figure out that distance. So as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God wants to be perfectly clear that I don't think like you do and I don't do like you do. I'm on a completely different operating system than you that has completely different values, functions, timing, method, resources. It's totally different, and you're not going to be able to figure it out. Paul picks up on this, and he expounds on it in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Watch this. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now, he's telling us very clearly that God's ways are so other to ours that we cannot possibly figure out what he's doing or how he's going to do it. Now, it's in the context of all of that that we are now called to forsake trust in self, which I do understand, and to lean all of my trust on a God that I can't understand in his fullness, in his completeness. And that presents a challenge to me. And, and there, there's a reason for that, because there are things in our lives, part of the all, right, all things, there are things in our life that are very important to us that we are afraid are maybe not important to him because he's so much different than we are, or 
The other fear is that maybe even if they're important to him, we don't know what he's going to do with those things or in those things that are important to us. And so we're hesitant to put our trust in him. One of those things is, is the pursuit of purpose in our life. Now, every one of us, we have goals, we have ambitions, things that we like to do. It could be a pursuit of wealth. It could be the pursuit of a goal that we have. It could be the pursuit of an ideal that we have in our mind, an ideal marriage, an ideal family, an ideal image of ourself or of our life, something that we want. And, and we have set out at some point in our life in a pursuit of something that we desire. And it's very important to us. And sometimes it's difficult for us to trust God in releasing that desire to him because we don't know what he's going to do with it. Maybe it's not important to him or maybe it's going to change me if he changes it because this drive in this direction has kind of formed who I've become. And if I give it to him and he starts messing with it, I don't know what I'm going to become. And so I'm fearful to trust him with this thing in my life. For other people, sometimes it's the sex issue. That's a big one for human beings. That if I trust God with my sexuality, what's he going to do with that? Because that is a part of me. It's, it's deeper than I'd like to admit. And it has tentacles that reach into other areas of my life. And if I surrender that part of my life to God, what if he shuts it off? What if he takes it away? I like it. I don't maybe want him to do that, and, and I, I struggle with what he says about what's appropriate in this. And so I hesitate to, to, to surrender in trust this area of my heart to him. For other people, it might be something a little bit deeper. It might be your style of relating to other people or, or, or the depth of relationship that you'll allow yourself to have with people. And there are things that have become a part of who you are, your demeanor, whether it's your shyness or whether it's your forwardness or bluntness, whether it's your level of professionalism or the way that you put yourself together, but it's designed in such a way to protect yourself from being vulnerable and interacting with people on maybe a deeper level than just the surface. And if I surrender that part, my relationships with other human beings, I don't know what kind of pain or vulnerability I might be opening myself up to. I don't know if I can trust God with that. For others, it's just having control. I think this is probably part of, again, going back to just that self-default setting that all of us have, is that we want to have control in our lives. I feel like if I have a hand on the sail of the things that are going on in my life, in my marriage, in my career, in my direction, my finance, if I have a hand on the sail, then I feel safe. And to trust God, what if he says, let go of the sail, I don't know what might happen and this seems very critical. Now, all of these things that we're called to trust God in are valid things, and they have an impact upon our lives, our personality, our present, our future, all of it. And when God says, my ways aren't your ways, and my thoughts aren't your thoughts, it makes it very difficult for us to trust him. Because to trust him means to not know what he's doing or what he's going to do, why he's doing what he's doing, how he's going to accomplish what his promises are, or this is the big one, when he's going to do the things that we're hoping that he will. And in the backdrop of all of that, to rest in perfect trust that he's good and that he's in control. Now, again, our way 
our pathway to success or blessing or growth is through productivity and performance. And I'll add predictability, right? We like predictability. We want to know what's going to happen. But with God, that's not his way. And because of that, listen carefully, because that's not his way, it can seem that sometimes he's overlooking, that he's unconcerned, that he's uninvolved, that he's non-existent, or that he's unfair in the way that he's dealing with us. Because he doesn't deal with us the way that we would deal with ourselves. There's a passage of scripture that I I want you to read this week. We're not going to read it now because it's a little bit lengthy. But the length of it is intentional by God. He makes it long because it almost sounds like he, he could have said, and God, isn't it interesting how God says so much in like a verse? But in this passage, he says the same thing, but he stretches it out over a lot of verses. It's Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. And I just put it up there so you could write it down because I want you to, to read it later. But, but essentially what that passage of scripture describes is when the children of Israel were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, there was a cloud during the day that would guard the camp of the people from the heat of the sun in the desert. And that was God's way of leading them. And so when the cloud would stop, all of the people would stop in the shade of the cloud And then when the cloud would move, they would follow the shade of the cloud so that they wouldn't be scorched and burned and dried out and tortured in the sun in the desert. And, And what that passage does is it basically says, listen, if the cloud stopped for three days, the people stopped for three days. If the cloud stopped for one hour, the people stopped for, you get the idea. But it just keeps saying it. If it stopped for two days, if it stopped for a month, if it stopped for a year. And and the idea is this, is that God didn't consult the will of the people as to when he would move the cloud. And here's what that would mean for some. There were some that were traveling with small children that for days on end, without rest, they would be traveling because that would be the, the, the movement of the cloud or the pillar. And they would complain and they would say, my goodness, God, can't you see the strain that this is on us right now? The the instability that this creates and the fatigue and the vulnerability to our very existence. And then the cloud would stop and they would say, thank you. And they would rest for a minute. And then the cloud would move and they would, right after setting up, they'd sleep for five minutes and God would say, it's time to go. And they would go, ah, then it would stop for three months. They'd be rested, they'd be refreshed, they'd be ready. They'd be like, let's go, time to move, progress, destiny, promised land, let's go. And God would be like, nope, we're going to wait. It's not time to move right now. And it would become very frustrating and it would seem to the people that God didn't care about what it was that they were going through or the pressures of their life during that time. He didn't tell them what he was going to do or when he was going to do it. He just did it. There's another passage of scripture. It's not a favorite for many of us, though. It's very insightful. It's called the book of Job. Have you read it? The book of Job describes unimaginable pain experienced in a human life for no apparent reason. Job did nothing wrong. There was no sowing and reaping element. God just did something in Job's life that was pain 
to the deepest level that you can imagine. He literally lost everything, all of his family, except for a nagging wife and even his health. He lost all of it and had no idea what was going on. And he sat in that condition just stewing over why God was allowing him to go through that level of pain undeservedly or for no reason. And for 30-something chapters, you just hear him saying, I just want to have a conversation with him. I just want to reason with him. I just want to plead with him. Give me one minute in court with God because this is just so unfair. And that's what Job was feeling under the pressure of what he was going through. And here's the reality for the child of God. If you know Jesus, this is the reality for you and for me, is that God's ways are not void of suffering, of pain, or of unanswered questions. Amongst the people of God, there are plane crashes that kill loved ones. There are positive biopsies that interrupt plans. There is unexpected unemployment that fills every thought of tomorrow with fear. There are unfaithful spouses that rip hearts out. There are rebellious kids that cause unimaginable pain and self-doubt in parents. There are demanding jobs that keep us moving at health-threatening paces. There are memories of abuse that haunt every moment and excite every nightmare. There are personal failures that kill our confidence and our hope. There are difficult decisions that we have to make where either decision comes with significant loss. There is consuming loneliness. There are questions like, where was God when I was raped? Why didn't he do anything and intervene? I didn't know that my son was behind the car and I backed up. It was like every other day, but now he's gone. Why did God allow that? Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't he help? And here's the reality is that almost no one would conclude on their own that God is good by studying life. Because if we rely on our own way of thinking, most of us would come to the conclusion that God is good when he wants to be, or that God is bad, or that God is uninvolved, or that God doesn't exist. And the proof that we feel this way somewhere inside of us is in our reluctance to trust him with the things that matter most to us because we don't know what's going to happen. When we look at what God allows in the lives of some of his children, even the most devoted, our trust is tested. And the determination to take things into our own hands seems moral sometimes when we see some of the things that God allows. And here's the point, is that the existence of God is enough to make us fear him, but it's not enough to make us trust him. And so the question is, where is the ladder that brings me from fearing him to the point where I can trust him? Or to say it another way, how can I come to the place where I'm willing to abandon all of my heart to trust him completely? And the answer to that question is found right in between Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 3-5. It's chapter 2 Verses 1 through 5. Look at it in your Bible. And I want you to listen to what Solomon says. Because without this element, it's almost impossible to come to a place where you really trust God with all your heart. Notice what Solomon says. He says, My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you, 
so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yea, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then you shall understand the fear of the Lord. And here it is. And find the knowledge of God. And here's the answer to the question is that I cannot come to trust him unless I first come to know him. That's what it means when it says the knowledge of God. It means to know God. Because you and I will never know what, why, how, or when. That's never going to happen because his ways are past finding out. But you can know him. And that makes all the difference. In John chapter 1, verse 18, there's a profound statement concerning Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen to what John says. He says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him or rather he has led him forth or he has revealed him. In other words, the pathway or the way that we can know God is through the revelation that was given to us by Jesus Christ. Now, how did Jesus lead God forth or reveal God in a way that we could know him unto trusting him. How did Jesus do that? Jesus did that in his very existence, in his very coming into the world. See, the Bible tells us that God loved Jesus uniquely. That was the first thing that God said concerning him. He said that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that's the context. We know that God had a love for Jesus that was unlike anything the world had ever known. Yet in the context of that love, the father allowed the son that he loved to be thrust into the underworld, stripped of his glory. He allowed him to live in poverty and in reproach in his family and in difficulty growing up. He allowed his son to be misunderstood by the people that he came to relate with and to save. He allowed him to be criticized and rejected. He allowed him to be betrayed by the people that he loved, abandoned by the people that he gave himself to. He allowed him to be confused in circumstance, not knowing what or why in the garden when he cried out and said, why why is this happening? He allowed him to be taken into custody by the Romans, mocked and tortured, maligned and beaten beyond what any man has ever endured. And ultimately, he allowed him to be hung on a Roman cross and to bleed out and die on the very earth that he created. All of that was allowed by the Father. And no one that was watching or walking with Jesus while all of that was going on had any clue what was really going on. And when even the followers of Jesus saw that happen to Jesus, it caused their trust to fail. That's why Peter said, I'm going fishing. He's like, this obviously ain't working out the way it was supposed to. So something went sideways somewhere, and this isn't what we thought, and he forsook even his trust. There was only one person in the midst of all of what Jesus went through that didn't lose trust. Do you know who it was? It was Jesus. 
Jesus, the one that was going through all of that, was the only one that didn't lose trust. He was abandoned to God in perfect trust, in perfect submission, in perfect obedience, and he embraced what his father was allowing because he trusted even what he couldn't understand. Now, here's what no one could see behind what God was allowing in the life of his son, Jesus. What they couldn't see is, number one, they couldn't see resurrection. It wasn't in the realm of their possibility to think that on the other side of suffering like that, there could be a resurrection that would represent a greater life than what he ever would have possessed if he didn't go through all of those things. No one considered that. But Jesus understood it. He also, no one else also understood the inheritance It was because of what Jesus went through that he was highly exalted to the place where he would become the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and that every knee would bow and every tongue in heaven and earth would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. That wouldn't be. The inheritance came through the trusting in the suffering. No one could see the redemption that was being accomplished on behalf of everyone else. That when Jesus went through what he went through on the cross, in his suffering, that he was doing that not for himself, but he was doing it for what it needed to be done for you and I in order for our sins to be forgiven, in order for us to be brought into a relationship with God, in order for us to know him in a way where we could trust him. See, if it wasn't for what Jesus went through, you and I wouldn't be sitting here tonight. So when God, in his mystery, and his majesty and his ways that we can't understand allows us to go through things that we think make him unconcerned or uninvolved or bad or unfair. He sees things that we don't understand. He sees a better resurrection. He sees something that he's going to do on the other side of what we're going through that's going to make it worthwhile for us. He sees inheritance He sees what will be for a billion years to come and how the sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, but that are necessary in order for us to end up there. He sees the redemption of what our trials and difficulties and painful situations are going to produce for someone else in a way that we could never have imagined that God would use us in the life of someone else. Jesus demonstrated in his trust, in spite of the difficulty of his life, that God is absolutely sovereign, that he's intricately involved in the smallest details of our life, and that he is uncompromisingly good. That's what Jesus demonstrated by coming into this world and going through what he went through. Here's the point, is that to pursue wisdom, God's wisdom, without knowing Christ is absolutely impossible. Because unless you know God through the person of his son, you will never come to the place where you can trust God because he allows things that you and I would never allow for ourselves. Without knowing him, it's impossible to generate the level of trust it takes for me to lay down self-trust.
And so the last question that I want to answer tonight is how can I know him to the level that I can trust him? How do I grow to that place? Because it's a process. It doesn't happen in a moment. And the answer is given to us in the five verses that we read in Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. And there is a principle for each verse. And hang on tight because this is going to go very quick, a lot quicker than you think. If I want to know him, if I really want to come to know Jesus to a place where I can really trust him, then what does that mean? First of all, he says in verse 1, he says, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you. Number one is that we are to continue in his word. That we might receive it and that we might hide his word in our hearts. Thus, we might discover his ways. We must continue in his word. In continuing in his word, what did Jesus say? He said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you what? Free. And so we must continue in the word of God to discover the person of God. Verse 2. He says, so that you incline your ear unto wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Number two is that I must resolve to pursue his ends and his ways. That is essentially to answer the call of chapters one through nine. That I am to resolve that I want God's wisdom and that I will have it at the expense of everything if that's what it means. Incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Give yourself to know the wisdom of God. Resolve to it. Verse 3, number 3, he says, Yea, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding. The third thing is that I'm to ask with intentionality. That I'm to ask God with words to give to me the wisdom and the knowledge of him that I need in order to walk with him in the way that he desires. Verse 4 and number 4, he says, If you search for her as silver and or seek for her as silver, and search for her as for hidden treasures. Number four is that I'm to value this pursuit and this end as the highest of all pursuits. That as we would value silver, as we would value precious treasure, that it's with that level of intensity that I'm to value the wisdom that God is willing to give me. Now, we would go to the ends of the earth for silver or for hidden treasure. God is saying, this is of more value than that. You must value the pursuit and the attaining of this wisdom in the highest way that you can. And the result is given to us. Number five, verse five. He says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. And that is that you will experience him in his fullness. That you will, now I spelled a word, isn't that clever? It would be to help you remember it. You can just spell it right next to the verses if you want to. Is that when we crave to know him in the way that he is willing to make himself known, the result of that is that we are going to experience him in the way that he intends that we would experience him. And listen, when we know him, then we will trust him in spite of the fact that we can't figure out what he is doing in our lives. And so the answer essentially that we, if we want to know God's wisdom, is that we must divorce ourself, <laughs> right? If, if self-trust is the enemy of trusting God, then I must divorce myself. I have to. Do you realize that the strange woman that he talks about in those first nine chapters, you know who it is? It's you. 
you're the strange woman. I'm the strange woman. Never thought I'd be saying that from a pulpit. You know, <laughs> you are, and you must divorce yourself. And when yourself tries to wiggle out of that divorce and says, what grounds do you have for divorce? You know what you say? Trust issues. <laughs> I can't trust you. I can't trust you because every time I have done what I think is best for me, I have ended up regretting it. But it starts with a decision to believe. It starts with this decision that, that I'm not going to understand how, I'm not going to understand what, I'm not going to understand why, I'm not going to understand when. But I'm willing to trust him enough that I'm willing to get to know him to the point where I can trust him with every area of my life and know that I'll be glad that I did it no matter what the issue is that we're dealing with or that he's dealing with in our life. Here's the truth. Is that God is God and that he has our best interest in mind at all times. Not maybe in the way that we think, but in a way that we'll agree when we see the full picture. God is God, and he's not going to change his mind about what he's ordained for our lives, nor is he going to change our, his ways to be like our ways because we don't like the ways that he have. We have the choice that we can either rest in his goodness or we can keep trying to change what we can't control because he's God and you can't control God. Some of us experience, you know God, but you experience what I'm going to call trust tension. Do you know what trust tension is? About, uh, it was a little over a week ago, there's a, um, a, a young woman in our church. She actually teaches in our Sunday school, and she is an amateur uh, mixed martial artist. She fights, she grapples, she, she scraps. And uh, she had her first, uh, you know, fight, I, I don't know if you call it professional fight, where you're actually recorded or whatever, your, your record counts from then on. And, and I'm actually glad she teaches in our Sunday school because it really helps. You know, you, there's a lot less numbers coming up on the board ever since that, you know, because she keeps them in line, you know. But uh, I took my oldest daughter, and we went to see her first fight. It was down in White Plains, and, and we watched, and it was intense. I mean, if you ever watch MMA, you know, it's too brutal for one of my sons. Like, he, he's like, nah, I, this is not me, you know, whatever. It's, it's, I mean, it's full contact. It's no joke. Like, you get knocked out. You get hurt, you know? And here's what happened when, when she fought. She was, like, seventh on the thing, so we're watching all these fights, and finally she gets in the ring. And you know what, you know what happened to me? is I watched three rounds. It went the distance. It was three three-minute rounds all the way to the distance. She won, by the way. She won her first fight. But for three rounds, I watched, and at the end, I was exhausted. <laughs> Do you know why? Because the whole time she was fighting, every muscle in my body was completely tensed because I was, like, trying subliminally to give her strength while she was trying to, like, lift this other woman. You know, I'm going, like, you know, yeah. my wife says I do this anytime we watch, like, an action thing. She says I'm, like, you know, doing it. You know, but I, I, was do, I was trying. Now, I can't help her by being tense in the middle of her battle. But it was instinctual for me that I've got to do what I can. Now, we do that with God all the time. Because he's the one that's working things out on our behalf. He's the one that's fighting the battle. He's the one that's wrestling for our destiny and for our future and for our sanctification and for our wholeness. He's the one that's fighting. But you and I can't trust him enough to just let him do it. So we've got all this trust tension. How's it going to work out? And we're exhausted most of the time, unnecessarily, 
Because we think we're helping God by straining in the middle of what we're going through. And the bottom line is that he gives us the choice of whether or not we want to rest and trust and allow him to work the way he's going to work, to do what he said he's going to do, or whether I'm going to keep trying to control what I can't. And he gives that choice to you and I. And what he lays out before us tonight is the call to trust in the Lord with all our heart, to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways, all our ways to acknowledge him. And the cost is that we must divorce ourselves and we must commit craving, knowing him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand, let's worship, and may God grant our prayer. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.